Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps under what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 111 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So for the third time in the history of my podcast, I have company today. Virginia is here, Virginia McGregor. She is the magical angel from the universe who put together Motherland for me, which is my memoir around Molly and Jack. I have her here today because a week from today, Motherland will hit the bookstores. We're doing a book signing in Concord at our local bookstore, Gibson's. And so, hi, Virginia. Hi. (laughs) So Molly died in 2016, and we all know I spent two or three years really struggling, just in the depths of despair and unable to really do anything. And as I pulled myself out and started sort of working through things like brain tumors and kidney transplants, life, believe it or not, seemed to feel a little bit better. And along with all this came COVID. And Virginia came to New Hampshire from England. They became part of Concord's community. And then COVID hit. So in all of this, Virginia and I became Facebook friends. I noticed her from her sweet Tennessee sky dancing at Concord Dance Academy. And then I wrote a couple of blogs and somehow we just started talking. And all of those things led up to a fateful day on my back porch, which we'll talk about in a bit. But first of all, I want you all to get to know Virginia and the wonderful works of fiction that she has brought into the universe and shared with lots and lots of readers. Just tell me a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Bob. It's such an honor to be on this podcast. And it was such an honor to write this book with you. And I'm really excited to talk about Motherland in a moment as well. So I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't want to be a writer. I think as soon as I understood that there was someone behind the stories that I loved growing up as a child, I just thought what a magical thing it would be to be the person who writes these stories. It's been with me my entire life. It's taken me a little while to give myself permission to call myself a writer, to set aside enough time to actually write and publish books. It was actually meeting my husband, who's also an artist of sorts, who is a great coach and, and a great sort of mentor as well as a, as a wonderful husband. And, and I always say he sort of loved me into being a writer. He, we were teaching together at the same time. I was teaching English and, and running a dorm. And, and he just said, you know, you've always wanted to be a writer. You write in all your holidays and vacations. And why don't you give yourself some time to write full time? And that's what I did. I took a year. I did an MFA in creative writing. I, you know, I wrote my heart out every day, like a full-time job. And by the end of the year, after many ups and downs, I got a, a publishing deal. And I've always had a passion really for telling people's stories and writing, especially contemporary fiction. I love novels that give us a snapshot of how we live now. I think that they are uniquely placed. The novel form is uniquely placed to tell stories of how we live. And if we look at the history of the novel, whether it's Charles Dickens or Jane Austen, you know, they wrote about the times in which they lived and they were able to give us the real essence of that time. And one of the things I loved about writing Motherland is I feel like, Barb, you're sort of the every woman, you know, you you and your story and your life and your losses and your successes, they give us not only an insight into your life, but a snapshot of what it means to live in the 21st century, to be mother in America, to be a mother who's lost a child, a mother who's had a child through extraordinary means. 
And so all my books, my contemporary stories, they try to address some of the issues of what it means to be alive today, some of the knotty, complicated, confusing, beautiful aspects of being alive. And I think that's what resonated with you when you read my books and maybe you recognize something of yourself in there and you thought, wow, actually my story might be similar to the fictional stories that she writes. Actually, I felt that a lot. It was The Return of Nora Wells, which was a book you wrote about two women and a guy, classic triangle. Yay, there it is. (laughs) Nora leaves. And I'm just going to sort of leave the details of the story at that. But if you know me, you all need to read this book. But I really related to her character because of the conflict she was in. And I also related to the ways that her friend and her the father of her children dealt with it all. That was probably the first time I felt that I truly had permission to really share my life. That was a work of fiction, but I could have lived 80% of those pages myself. You know, I I read for for enjoyment and entertainment, but you're right. There's a lot to learn in reading (laughs) these fictional stories that could actually totally be true and and probably are true somewhere. I just think story is more important now than, well, it's always been important in society. I think we're hardwired to respond to story in a way that, you know, we might not respond always to a lecture or to nonfiction or, you know, to being told what to do. If we see a very personal story, we inhabit it, we live it, we become empathetic towards it. And and it's a way of kind of really touching our our humanity and it helps us put our judgments aside and, and to live lives that are different from our own. And so I feel like getting under the skin of, of people and their stories is, is really important to all of us. How do you come up with your stories? I mean, of the, of, you know, seven books. Yes. Seven. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I can get the number right. Eight with yours. <laughs> yes. Yay. They're all very different stories. There are some common threads. I think the biggest thread is personal struggle and how self-blame can be such a hindrance to moving forward with things. You know, my blame over Molly's death, self-blame, kept me in a chair for a long time. But how do you come up with these beautiful stories? I mean, they're not just little simple once upon a time stories. They're they're complex and they're multifaceted and the connections of the characters isn't always obvious at first, but they're all connected by the last page. Like how do you how do you do that? So I always I mean good stories are always about conflict and tension of some kind. And and I like to often write from multiple points of view because I feel that any given story when looked at from many angles, you know, you, you suddenly as a reader realize that human stories are much more complex than the judgments that we have of them. And sometimes it'll be a newspaper article that tackles something in modern life that I think gosh that's a really interesting complex thorny issue that I would like to grapple with on a story level. Actually, with what Milo saw, my first book, it was the nursing home crisis in the UK that all of a sudden all these undercover reporters were going into old people's homes and discovering that they weren't being treated with the care that they should be. And often what happens is I'll look at a sort of societal issue, whether it be adoption or mothers walking out on their children or, you know, this crisis in in care And then I'll think of a sort of personal connection to it or a personal story that I've heard or seen. And, you know, at the time I was very close to a sort of grandmotherly figure in my life. And I thought about the relationship between the very old and the very young. And then suddenly I saw a very little boy and his close relationship to his great grandmother. And so it kind of lots of different elements come together, a sort of alchemy often a social issue and then some personal stories. And then sometimes also I'm an English teacher and I love literature. And so with The Return of Nora Wells, the one that you loved, you know, I was teaching Ibsen's A Doll's House, which is a, a very old play. And at the end of it, the mother walks out 
on her small children. And it sort of was published at the turn of the 18th, 19th century. And it was said that when the curtain fell on that play, the whole of Europe shook because mothers don't walk out on their children. That's just the biggest taboo. And then I asked myself, I wonder what happens when she comes back? Because there's an intimation in the play that once she's found herself and grown up, she's going to come back. So many threads come into writing a novel, but sometimes often it starts with a, with a sort of social issue. And I think that's why your story appealed to me because I I can't think of a more more emotive and difficult subject than child loss. And I often go towards the things that I find hardest. You know, I was a mother of three small children when we started talking and the notion of losing a child terrified me hearing your story. And it still does, but it also made me feel like this was a really important story. So good answer. And it got me, sort of led me to my next question. So the first book I read of yours, Gracie and I read it together, As Far As The Stars, with the airplane, yes. two teenagers or two young people meet at an airport and they, they both have somebody on an airplane, yep, that is now disappeared and no one knows all of this. So the whole book only spans really two days, two or three days, the whole story. But I remember finishing it and saying, Gracie, you need to read this book. And my daughter, Gracie, doesn't read quickly or easily. She can read the words, but she has to process it. And that's a slow process for her. And she finished it like in two and a half days, which is unheard of for her. And I said, what did you think? And she's like, how can she write about this so accurately? So Gracie looked at it from her own perspective of losing Molly, the mystery of their loved one, the loss of their loved ones, and sort of how at the very end, things are sort of tied together. And, and Gracie's like, did she go through this? But I remember that made me want to read your other books. And so I started picking them up and reading them. And I will say, as someone that's lost a child in the general population, not other child lost moms, because that's a whole different beast, but in the general population, people just don't know what to say to me and they don't know how to be around me. And even people that walk in on me laughing and they see that it's me, I can see that I can see the tension and they, and they sort of wait to see what comes next. The other piece that I see a lot is when I bring up Molly's name, the expressions on people's faces. And it's a very difficult thing to cope with. So my, my overall feeling is that unless you've been through it, you don't have a clue. And your books, three of them, I think, address the direct effects of child loss. Yeah. And so when I started reading and got to those books, I'm thinking to myself, she must have lost a child because she couldn't write about this. And I remember asking you, did you lose a child? No. So I, I know this is probably why you're an author and why you write such beautiful stories is because you have this ability. But how do you do that? Like, how do you really get into someone like a mother that's lost a child and write so accurately about what it does to them? I think ever since, I think this is a quality of maybe being a writer, you know, like you're, you're an extraordinary runner and part of it is a huge amount of effort and time and discipline, but there's also that kind of little ingredient that you know is there that you're not quite sure where it comes yeah. from, but it allows you to do what you do. And there's just a part of my character, which makes living really hard, but writing not easy, but it, it helps me to be a writer, which is that. I think I have a capacity to inhabit other people's lives on a very deep and emotive level. It makes mothering really hard because I feel like I'm walking around with all my children's emotions all the time. Yes. Even when they're misbehaving, I feel deeply what is going through their minds and their hearts. And so I guess I'm an over empath in that way, but right. there's something about when I listen to people's stories, I sort of almost wear them like a skin and I don't pretend 
to ever understand fully what it is like to lose a child. I don't want to have the arrogance to say that. I think it's that is the realm of those of you who have gone through it. But there's something about hearing people's stories that really move me, that allow me to use my imagination, I suppose, right. and my character to live those lives. I suppose actors do that too when they fully inhabit a character. It's sort of method acting, right? Actors. Yes. They really live it. And, you know, for those years when we were writing your book, I was reading a ton of memoirs about child loss or about loss in general, people losing their spouses or losing people that are important in their lives. And I saw the common threads and, and I feel like I lived it a little bit. And so when I write my books and my characters, I feel like I inhabit their lives. And maybe that's, that's a particular you know, skill I've been given, which like I said, it, it, it's wonderful for the writing, but hard for the living sometimes. <laughs> right. No, that makes, actually, that's a really good analogy. I mean, I ran 50 miles a week and did track workouts and ran really fast enough to go to college for free. And hundreds of people run the same amount of miles every week and do the same workouts and don't. So there's yeah. that invisible piece. You're, yeah. You create characters that are believable. So even if you, Virginia, don't understand what the mother is going through that's lost the child or the father, your character's do like you read, read it. And like, I never once in any of your books have felt like, okay, that's not very believable. Never. I, I was pulled right into it as a fellow grieving parent, which segues well into the whole process of this. So I remember it was, it was spring of 2020. And I remember it was Gracie's birthday and you guys came down and we started sort of hanging out and Sky had just this sort of interest in Molly. And I remember loving it because kids can be so open around you know, we all think we have to shield children. I think we need the shielding sometimes and we should go by them that, you know, they, they take in things without judgment because no one's taught them to judge. They just take it in for what it is. And I remember Sky's questions around Molly and, and really wanting to understand what it meant to be dead. And, and how do you hear about Molly and where is she? And then going to the cemetery and just that whole learning experience for Sky. And what struck me about it I remember specifically looking at my phone and I had a picture of Molly in her casket and Sky wanted to see it. And I looked at you like, is that all right? And you were like, sure. And a mm -hmm. lot of parents would have been horrified at that whole process, but it was just this beautiful thing. And I remember telling Gracie and Kenny about it, like that just struck me. And so I think mm -hmm. in my mind, that was the beginning of, you know, I don't think I connected, like I'll have her write my book in that moment, but mm -hmm. it started me being a bit more open around actually creating a book. We were on the porch and it was mayhem in the yard and all of this. And, and we sort of talked about it. And I asked you, would you be willing to do it? You know, out came a notebook and out came a pen and we jotted down some things and it was, yeah, there they are. I know. Oh, yeah. I chose pink for Molly. I'm wearing pink for Molly too. I love, yeah, <laughs> me too. Tell me a little bit about that from your side, because here's this, you know, locally well-known, relatively crazy person, you know, with a very chaotic life and trying to pull things together and, you know, brain tumors and kidney transplants and dead children and all the chaos that goes with all these things. And here you are, you know, your family. And how do you remember this whole process? And what made you decide that maybe it was a good thing to do? Well, first of all, I think, you know, you're, you're like one of the characters that I get to know in my fiction, but in real life. So I met you and I was like, gosh, this is like one of the characters that I would like to write about in one of my books, but she's real. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, that was a feeling I had. It was interesting just the other day as an aside, yesterday we were driving to school and Skye said to me, I love it how Barb always answers all our questions and she always tells the truth and she doesn't shy away from everything. And then they all said, oh, we wish we'd met Molly. 
And then Somerset said, but it feels like we really know Molly. (laughs) And I said, I remember saying to them, I think Barb would really love that because one of her, her passions in life is keeping Molly's memory and character alive. And what was amazing for my children was that you know, they were experiencing their first story of child loss. You know, they, they'd heard about grandparents passing or pets, but this was really real and raw, but they were coming to understand life. And I think, you know, for me, I, I want my children to understand life and all its complexity and difficulty and, and challenges. And when children feel like their, their questions are answered and watching you with children, I mean, you're a natural educator, but you have such a gift with connecting with, with young people and you know, Sky, my my eldest, who has these deep philosophical questions, she felt so seen and validated and heard because you told her the truth about things in a way that was loving and was gentle. And so I think your temperament, your character, also quite simply, you know, you are a natural storyteller. Mm. I know it's a challenge for you to write about Molly, like on the page, but you tell, that's why you're a great podcaster and so on. So there are so many things, just watching right. you with my children, this extraordinary story of Molly watching it infiltrate my children's lives. And, and she's like, she's like a living character in our, in our lives, you know, and, and it's actually, we were again talking just yesterday and said, we realized we were packing up our lives in England to come here just as she was dying. Right. So it was 2016. So yep. just as we were preparing to cross the Atlantic was when she was in her last days. So there was a real kind of coming together there. Very much so. I agree. And so I think, you know, your personality, I think your honesty, your authenticity, your truthfulness, your, you know, your connection to young people, the important, and one of the things I learned when I was reading lots about child loss was the common thread that people say, and there's this famous actor, Robert Delaney, who wrote this beautiful book called A Heart That Works, his three-year-old died of a brain tumor. And, and he just says, you know, people don't want to talk about yeah. child loss or about death, and we need to talk about it. We need to air it and to share it. Because it's really, really hard for the people who go through it. Story appealed to me. You, I think most of all as a character, appealed to me. I I don't think I've ever met anyone quite like you. (laughs) That's probably Um, good. (laughs) You know, and I I felt like you deserved a a story to be told and just my children's response to it too. I just, I don't know why you were put through this terrible, terrible ordeal, but I know that part of the goodness that we can draw from it is telling the story. Right, right. Yeah, and the whole why, I mean, that's, the whole impetus for the podcast, Jack's birth really, you know, solidified and opened my eyes to things in a way that I didn't anticipate. And so the podcast, the idea came when he was like five weeks old. And I do have a much easier time telling things than Mm. writing them down. I had two or three people read the book so we could, I had Margaret read it, wonderful Margaret Porter, Paul Brogan, and David Cummings. So three local people that have either our authors themselves or work in the media industry. And two of the three really know me super well. And their comments were that they could hear my voice. I mean, the story's mine, but you you penned the words. When you create fiction, it's your story. You create the characters. You decide what happens next. You create and weave the fabric of the story because you've made it up, so to speak. So now I'm like imposing a story. Upon. How is this different for you? How did you do it where it really sounds like I wrote those words? One of the, the things that we try to do as authors, if, if we want to write well, is to make ourselves as invisible as possible. You know, when you're reading a great story, you don't want to have the author's voice in your head interrupting the narrative. You know, my mum always says when she reads my books, she just forgets that I wrote them. I love that. And I I think I really try hard when I write about characters. Even in fiction, you, you still sometimes kind of 
I don't know, introduce your ideas or your thoughts or your style or your voice. And with memoir and writing for someone else, it was taking all of this one step further where I had to become completely invisible. I didn't want anyone to feel at any point in the book, oh, Virginia's writing this, or this sounds a bit like Virginia. And also, you know, we're totally, I'm an English person from across the Atlantic with a very different character and temperament and style to yours. And so it was a really good discipline, actually, as as a writer to try and become completely invisible as an author and to only tell your story in your voice. I think one of the things that helped both of us in the process was I'd send you lots of questions and then you would reply through through an app that we used, a sort of dictation app. So I remember going on long walks and I would listen to your answers. And I think I lived with your voice in my head for probably about two years. (laughs) And so I got used to your turns of phrase. And often I would, I don't know if you noticed, it was a bit sneaky, but I'd get you to retell the story several times in slightly different ways. And then I'd listen to the three versions and I'd kind of pull the best bits for the story. And every time you told the story, it might be slightly different, but you'd have, you'd emphasize certain things or you would, you know, you have a very particular way of of articulating things. And I, I tried as best as I could to capture that on the page. And if I managed to do that at least a little bit, then I'm really glad. When I tell the story, of how this came to be. And when I actually talked to Paul Brogan about it, when he said, I can't believe that you didn't write this. I can totally mm-hmm. believe that Virginia did because he knows mm-hmm. you as an author, but it was, it was mind, really mind blowing for him. We emailed back and forth several times about it. Like he couldn't wrap his head around it for a bit. And I shared with him that I told you the story and that you listened and listened and listened and you wrote the story from what you heard. And while I wasn't aware that you were asking me the same thing two or three times for any other reason than maybe you needed to hear it again, Yeah, I get it. You can tell the same story three times, or you can have three people listen to a story and then separate them and have them tell you what they heard. And you get three different things. We intuit what stands out to us. So by Mm -hmm. listening two or three times, you stepped out of your intuit into the, I need to hear all the sides, which actually answers a, helps to answer a question for me around how you can so accurately write about things like child loss and family loss and tragedy and political issues. You're mindful to take in, in all sides. Yep. I'm going to look at it as a mother. Now I'll look at it as a friend. Now I'll look at it as a father. Now I'll look at it as a coworker. Like, you know, one story and the audience is all these different people. Another thing that I can't answer for you is so we ha- we sit on the porch. I'm in a bathing suit. We're talking about, mm-hmm. would you write a book for me? And, and we start, you start to sort of outline what we'll talk about. And then I tell you, well, by the way, you know, having mm-hmm. an IVF transfer in five days and see if I'm going to have a baby. And you, you were one of like, five people at the time that even knew that was all happening. So you're walking home with your crazy family that day, your wonderful, crazy family. And (laughs) as you, as you'd really embarked on it, what was going through your head? Like, what were you thinking or how do you remember those, the beginning of the process and what stands out, if anything? I think one of the tricky things about memoir is, you know, in fiction, you can kind of shape it. And if you think, oh gosh, you know, that's a bit too much, too radical for that character, I can trim it down or I can cut it out or, and with you, the deeper I went and the more I asked you questions, the more fantastical your life seemed. And I remember thinking and saying to you, I think if I was writing fiction, my editor would say, you can't write about child loss and then have a woman give birth at 57 because that's too much for one book and your reader won't believe it. And it's, you know, too strange. And so 
I think it was trying to, one of the challenges was taking your remarkable life, which by the way, we could have written, I don't know, 10, 20 volumes beyond <laughs> what we wrote. But I think that was part of the skill, wasn't it? it? was pulling out the bits that we wanted to tell for this book. Was trying to understand what were the overarching threads. And I think that's why the title of the book is so great, Motherland, because it ties together the improbability of bringing together something, you know, like child loss, which, which just overtook your life so completely. And then, you know, this extraordinary miracle baby that happened so late in life and somehow ties them together because motherland is about how as mothers, we inhabit a landscape that is rich and varied and complicated and devastated. And in your own personal story, you go from one extreme to the other, you know, you go from complete loss to creating new life. So at first I was kind of slightly terrified and I was like, oh gosh, how do we make this work? Do we, do we have a whole separate book for Jack? Do we not mention it? Do we mention it? We went back and forth quite a lot. Do we include it? And what was interesting quite late in the editing process, actually one of our editors said she wanted us to bring Jack in earlier in the narrative to kind of balance out, you know, the loss and then the kind of light and the hope that comes from, from Jack. But also, I think one of the things we trod on very carefully, and I, I love this about you and writing your story, is that there were no neat or cliched answers. So when someone hears that you have a baby, the automatic thought is, okay, she's lost a child, so she's giving birth again, and now everything's fine because she's replaced the dead child with a new child, and now life is great. But one of the things that I found striking and I think was very honest about with the book was that in a way, having Jack was almost like a complete, I mean, it was deeply tied to Molly, but it didn't take away from the grief at all. It didn't make the grief lesser. It didn't improve on the situation. It didn't replace Molly. It was like a separate thing. And I think that's really important for, for us to understand with grief is that just because something good happens in your life, it doesn't, you know, so this actor, Robert Delaney, he went on to have, he has three boys now, I think. And he's like, I love each of them profoundly, but none of them makes up for the loss of my little boy. No. And so whenever you threw something at me, I think I treated it as an opportunity to write about a really interesting part of the human condition and about grief, you know, right. so rather than simplifying life, you complicated it. And by complicating it, you make it more real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Simplifying has never been a skill for me. <laughs> I always often compare my brain to a camera. So I have a wide angle lens for a brain mm -hmm. and you have, you also have a wide angle lens in terms of what you take in, but you have telephoto capability to narrow it down to what the most important thing is. And that's always been difficult for me to be able to narrow the focus. Oftentimes the first question people will ask me, well, they say, why? Like mm -hmm. I was at, for example, I was at a fundraising event Saturday night and I met this wonderful couple. I wrote about them in this week's email mm -hmm. and we sat down and we started chatting and they were a bit older than me, retired and we're chatting away. And I said, well, I really should go. I have to get, I have a two-year-old at home. And their immediate response was, oh, our, your grandchild. And I said, no, I had a baby when I was 57. And they both looked at me like, why? What were you mm -hmm. thinking? And so we chatted about it. And of course, Molly came up and come to find out this gentleman lost a child in April, a 38 year old, but still that's his son and his firstborn. And he yep. can't talk about it without crying because he's five months into this horrific journey. So I thought, okay, this is why I'm at this fundraiser. I would never come to, you know, it's all these fancy yeah. people where I didn't feel like I fit in. But 
we had this amazing conversation. And one of his first questions was, do people assume that you had Jack to make up for Molly? And I said, all the time, but it's not his job to replace Molly or make mm-hmm. up for Molly. Just like it's not Gracie's job to be enough because we talked about how upset Gracie was when she found out I was pregnant. And she just took it so personally, like an affront to her ability to be a good daughter and a good sister. Aren't I enough? I'm still here. Well, it's never been your job to be enough. Like you're completely enough to be Gracie. And that's that's the only job you have is to be yourself, not to replace Molly, not to step in now and be two daughters. And Jack, you know, I was a bit nervous at first when I found out Jack was a boy, but it's been wonderful because there's no comparison. <laughs> Say what you want about gender, girl babies and boy babies are nothing alike. (laughs) Oh my my gosh, nature nature and the unexplained aspects of all that we see and experience are wonderful sometimes. But has Jack replaced a lot of our sadness and anxiety with joy? Yes, because there's not a lot of time to get lost in the sadness. You know, he's Mm -hmm. climbing on something or being hilarious or wanting Mm -hmm. attention. And Mm -hmm. so he can pull me up out of some pretty dark times. Now, here we are. So Let's talk a little bit about the editing process. One thing I liked about how we went about this was that you wanted the whole story and we wrote the whole story, which I think is the only way to write a story. And then if you have to take things out of it. So, you know, there's the the whole medical malpractice in the lawsuit. I talk about it comfortably because it was all over the news and none of that could be in the book. I can't lay blame. I I can't share any of that process, but I can't tell the story authentically to you without telling the whole story. So people ask me sometimes, how did you write it by leaving it out? And I'm like, well, from my end, we didn't leave it out. I told the whole story and then we removed what we couldn't share. So to me, we could have written it and left it out, but I feel like we would have been moderating the story that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like we needed, I often liken it to, you know, a sculptor with, with his, you know, piece of marble or a potter with with a lump of clay, you know, you need all the material there and then you shape it. And I think because there was so much material, I think we needed to write it all down and then step back and see, okay, what is essential to the telling of this story? And that's why writing books takes so much time because, you know, you, you, you write several drafts, but also you need the time to be able to put it down and then look back at it and then see it for what it is and understand which bits fit and which bits don't fit. And actually also because I was, and this is part of the ghostwriting process that I thought was so important. I needed to write and listen to and watch hours of deposition tapes to get to know you even if those words never make it into the final published book. Right. So none of it was wasted. And, and, and I find this when I write fiction too, you know, sometimes there are 20, 30,000 words or more that never make it to the final copy, but I needed to write them to get to know the story. And so, so I think the work, the labor that we did together, the thousands of right. words that we wrote that, that aren't in this book as it is on the shelf, were part of us understanding, you know, what needed to be in the story, but also for me to understand my subject. I mean, gosh, watching you going through that process of being questioned about your role in the months and days and weeks leading up to Molly's death, it was just, it was so devastating and harrowing, but also it showed me your strength and your character and I wish we could have kept a lot of it right. in because yeah. I think it made for a really good story and maybe in the future we can. But yeah, editing is actually a really magical and creative process. You know, some people think, oh gosh, this is a really hard, the really fun bit is the writing. But actually the editing is 
where the magic happens, isn't it? Well, and I can I can agree with that now. When we started yeah. this process, so for those of you listening, Virginia finished the book, and it took me about eight months to even read it. Mm-hmm. Which is, I'd start and I'd have to stop. I'd start and I'd stop. I just wasn't in the mindset to take it in. And then when I finally read it, was just so you know, it brings me right back. But as we started the process with editing, just you and I at first, and then when the atmosphere folks came in and really said, "Look, here's what needs to happen." You know, we edit down, edit down, edit down. And I'm like, no, I, that's part of the story. And then I realized that it's part of my story, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean when somebody reads my book without it, they won't be told a story. Like mm-hmm. that's a distinction that I don't think I really understood until we had gone through this a few times. And once I understood that, I remember sitting on my living room couch and we had to shorten, 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 shorten. And there were there were a couple of chapters where I'm like, okay, we can take this out. And one of them was the Mora chapter, my friend Mora. And I didn't want to take any of it out initially because it was like my chance to share her, but so much of it really wasn't necessary to make the point. And learning how to call that out was really, really helpful for me. And now looking back on it, I can say that editing, it's like weeding a garden, you know, maybe the wildflowers that are the weeds are beautiful, but that's not where they belong, you know? So you weed them out and then you have this beautiful garden. You know, we were trying to craft the reader's experience of the story. And so by removing the things that weren't necessary for them or not, not vital for this particular book. I think we've hopefully made the reader experience much, much richer. Yeah. Yeah. So as this airs, it is October (laughs) 16th. So we're a week away from the book signing at Gibson's. I'm terrified. (laughs) You've done some book signings. (laughs) So here we are, we're at this final process. We've chosen a cover. We've edited and recrafted and reorganized and cut away and added words and words and words to the story. Now we're trying to get people to come. What is this aspect of this like for you? Now I'm going to make you sit next to me because I can't, I can't sit there and say I wrote the book. This was a group effort for sure. So maybe people listening have never been to a book signing. What, what exactly happens and why do we do this? And tell me a little bit about Gibson's. So I often liken, you know, the writing of a book to the gestation of a baby and then the delivery and then you know, people want to come and see the baby and coo over it and get to know the baby and hold the baby. And and that's very apt metaphor, I suppose, for motherland. But, you know, it takes a huge amount of time and effort and, and, and emotional kind of energy and creativity to launch a book into the world. And I think with memoir in particular, it's very personal and you have to be very vulnerable to write in a way that is as authentic and truthful as, as you have in this book. And so what's wonderful about a book launch or a book event is it's a chance to gather people together who love stories and books, who love you, who loved Molly, to come and hear about the process, to hear you reading from the book, which I think with memoirs really, really special. And I think particularly because we worked so hard on capturing your, your voice, to be able to hear it in your own voice. Readers, even with my fiction, they often say it's so nice to hear you reading you know, your book out loud. So I think that's a real treat hearing an author reading from their own book. So I think what will happen is, you know, we'll sit at the front and we'll have a conversation and I will kind of ask you questions about the book and the story. And then you'll give a reading of the book and then we'll open it up to the audience. And that's often also where the magic happens, where people can ask their own questions and maybe share their own stories of of loss or grief or also do what I think, Bob, you have allowed us to do from the moment that you found out that Molly was not going to wake up, which is you've allowed us to share in your story. You know, we talk in, in the book about that week when you allowed the world to come and say goodbye to Molly. And I think the book is an extension of that. You're allowing people 
to ask the questions that are hard to ask or that we feel afraid to ask or that we shy away from. And so I hope in that question and answer session, people will, you know, will be able to be really open and that it will start a conversation and it will allow people in modern life to talk about grief in a way that we don't. We're so far removed from, from death. You know, we lock it away and, and everything is sort of so, so sanitized and we pretend as though death doesn't happen, I right. think, in our society right. often. And, and so I think it's really healing to talk about death as, as a part of life. So I think it's going to be a really special time. So yeah, a conversation, a reading from you, hopefully a really wonderful question and answer session. And then you'll sit at a table and you need to practice your signature. I know. <laughs> this is my biggest uh, fear. <laughs> my name. You know, practice, practice your name. But you know, I, I'm just reading Nathan Hill. He's just released a great book. He's coming to Gibson's and he just does a big NH and the big, you know, you can do just your initials or whatever. I'll probably just do Barb then, because I just go by Barb. Barb, you know? Barb and I think that's your kind of your brand, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. No, there was a Barb. time when I'd be like, you know, Madonna, Cher. Yes. Barb. Like, Barb. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And then what's lovely about the signing is it's not actually just you writing your name in a book. It's people who are queuing up and they have a moment with you and they might share a personal story or anecdote. You might inscribe something that's special to them, or they might actually, because with this kind of memoir, so I have a friend, Marjorie, who I write with in, in Gibson's, and she wrote about her husband who had Alzheimer's and then passed away. And I remember when I went to her book launch, I asked her to make the book out to a friend of mine whose husband was in a similar position. And, and so I imagine with this book, some people will buy your book to put into the hands of someone else, you know, someone else who's, yeah. who's grieving or struggling or needs to understand better. And so, so I just feel there's something, there's something very simple about those sort of book events, but also very, very profound. And then happening at a local bookstore, you know, these local independent bookstores, they're the heartbeat of our community. They're yeah. where where people come together. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what your background is you know, you feel welcomed and at home and you feel safe there. And Gibson's is a very, very special part of our community and the booksellers know us and they support local authors. And so it is, it's a really precious time. You know, yes, they have the big celebrity authors and that's really exciting. But I think the really special events are when you have these local authors who come and share their stories and they're right. held beautiful community of, of readers and writers and so yes, I urge you, if you're anywhere near Concord, New Hampshire, do yeah. do come along because it's right. it's going to be a really wonderful experience. And and it's part of the, I suppose, writing memoir or fiction or whatever you write, it's part of advancing the human conversation. Right. You know, right. well, and that's the best part for me. I think I yeah. recently wrote either an email or a blog and I was talking about stories, sharing our stories. And the whole point of that is to generate connections and yeah. conversations. That's what stories do. We, we both like it or we, one likes and one doesn't, but it creates conversation. And now we're talking about something. I do know in the feedback I've gotten, I've shared it quite a bit mm -hmm. on social media. A lot of the people that are, that are willing to travel are other angel moms, I call them, other, yeah. other families that have gone through child loss. I'm also hoping, and I'm putting this out here so that we'll have to do it, is to hit some other independent bookstores yes. in New Hampshire. The response I got from my, I belong to a group called Ellie's Way and we, a group of us got together and all of the moms there wished, oh, I wish I could write a book. I'm like, well, you can, you know, give yourself time. I was the furthest along in my child loss grief in this particular group. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't go back any sooner to it ever. Mm -hmm. One of the moms was just coming up on a year and I was just still a devastating mess mm -hmm. a year after Molly died. I would never want to be that close to it again, which is sort of a weird, grief is just so weird. Everything you mm -hmm. say has two meanings inside the heart of a mm -hmm. mother, you know, so it's interesting. 
I really want to thank you for being willing to do this for me. Something that people should be aware of when writing, you know, reading this book is that, you know, you had to relive those scenes and those emotions over and over and over again. And if I'm editing a fiction book, it might be laborious or boring or dull or repetitive at times. But for you, you know, it was it was really hard. It wasn't yeah. just telling your story once. It was reliving it and reliving it and reliving right. it. And you've done that as a gift to us. And I think that's extraordinary that you've done that. And I think that many, many people will thank you deeply for having done that work because I think some some grieving parents simply can't. No, I mean, it, no. it, that's why it's not about necessarily just being able to write a book. It's about being able to relive yes. moments that are just so tremendously painful. Yes. So I think you were put in the world, Bob, to, I don't know, to speak certain truths that help people, you know, who struggle with their own lives or their own, you're a sort of spokesperson for all of us in that way. So mm -hmm. it was such an honor writing this book. I'm so excited to see it out in the world, to see how people respond to it. Um, I've learned more than through anything that I've, I've written and yeah, it was wonderful to work together. Right. So if people want to find you like on social <laughs> media or online, where do they find you? I'm Virginia McGregor. McGregor is M-A-C-G-I-E-G-R. And you can find me anywhere, really. I've got an Instagram account, Virginia McGregor Writes. I've got a website, virginiamcgregor.com. You can look my books up on, go and ask your independent bookseller to order a copy, or you can find it online on bookshop.org or IndieBound or Amazon. And also I'm very responsive. So if you have questions about the writing process or considering writing a memoir yourself you can email me through my website and I'm happy to you know to field any questions <laughs> yeah the more stories that we have out in the world about people's lives the easier it is for all of us to live right that's t-shirt worthy right there and that's, that's what we learned isn't it with all your stories that silence is the thing that sort of kills us all I think yeah. actually airing it and, and being open it it allows us to breathe and and to right. to survive well silence can be deafening that's my experience yeah. with it in many aspects of my life. Fans, thank of you, Bob. A Thousand Tiny Steps. Thank you so much for listening today. As always, when I wrap up my podcast, the first thing I want you to do is to be good to yourself. So Virginia, go have a cup of tea or a walk in the woods <laughs> or pat those 86 <laughs> cats you live with. Oh, I know, <laughs> cuddle this one. Exactly. In another podcast, I have to tell you how this extraordinary Bob drove my cats all the way to New York, even though she's <laughs> allergic to them and doesn't really like cats when I oh, moved in. Oh, and in Boston and I picked them up. Oh, we, we, that tells you everything you need to know about Bob and her generosity. I will say <laughs> when I show up at Virginia's house, the cats all run though. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, like, take us to the airport. Exactly. <laughs> so that's us being good to ourselves. Be good to someone else. It's important that you pass along your self-love to others. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.